Let's turn, please, in your Bibles to Psalm 133. We have taken the summer here at Berlin to spend time together in the Psalms. It's a tradition that we've had in the past, and so we have returned to it. Last week, we worked through Psalm 133, which is just three verses. And as I joked with you last week, somehow we have stretched that out to two sermons. And we will finish today. The reason why I wanted to spend this much time working through this psalm is because I and you have a tendency to be hearers of the word and not doers of the word. Now, that's hard to admit because we always like to put our best foot forward. But even though we are justified, those of us who have received the righteousness of Jesus by faith, we often still struggle to obey God. And so we are returning to Psalm 133 today, and we'll explore it once again and its implications, especially as it is taken up by our Lord and the apostles, the themes of this psalm in the New Testament, so that we might be humble and faith-filled doers of the Word and not just hearers only. We've entitled this short two-week look into Psalm 133, The Surprising Joy of Covenant Unity. We found last week that unity in and of itself is not something that we manufacture. Unity is a gift. Let's read Psalm 133 again so that that can be plain to us. This is a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, where there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. May God bless to us the reading of His holy word. Unity is a gift. Such a gift that it should surprise us. The reason it surprises us is because we live in a world which is full of schism, full of brokenness, full of division. We see this politically in our culture. We see the tragedy to this day of ethnic division. We see it religiously. We see it maritally. There is a very scant chance, a very slight chance, that anyone sitting here today does not have someone that comes readily to your mind with whom you have an estranged, not estranged, all of us have strange relationships, an estranged relationship, a broken relationship. 
A relationship that at one time was dear and beautiful and life-giving, but now is the opposite of that. And when we experience unity, it is thrilling, frankly, even surprising. And there is deep joy that comes from it, which, which tells us that God must be at work. Because though one of the consequences of the fall of humanity was brokenness vertically in our relationship with our Creator, immediately as soon as the fall happens, God tells the first humans that there will be brokenness division among them as well. And ever since we have been experiencing the consequences of that, it is as though Adam and Eve threw a giant boulder into the proverbial pond and its ripples are still coming to shore. And some of the consequences of that throwing of the boulder into the pond is that we have experienced brokenness in our relationships. But David wrote this psalm, a man who was very much acquainted with brokenness. Brokenness of relationship, even with those who are most dear to him, his closest friends, his own wife, one of them, a couple of his children. David had experienced the bitterness of division, and he wrote this song for traveling pilgrims, as we talked about last week. The Psalms of Ascent, there are 15 of them in this section of the Psalter, which are given to us to show us how pilgrims travel together as they come to worship. Back in the time of the ancient Israelites, three times a year they were to gather together and come up to Jerusalem and there worship the God who had brought them into covenant unity with Himself. But there is no way that they could experience the covenant unity with Him unless they had covenant unity together. So David wrote this psalm so that the pilgrims who were traveling up to renew their covenant loyalty to God could experience the warmth of unity together. And it was a gift. David makes this clear by saying that the oil that was used to anoint Aaron the high priest could be experienced, the uniqueness of it, in the unity of the people. God had given a special recipe for this oil. It was costly, it was fragrant, and it was to be used abundantly on this particular person, on this high priest, also on the elements of the tabernacle which prefigured the eventual temple that Solomon would build so that the altar and the table of bread and the candlesticks and so forth, and even the Ark of the Covenant itself would be anointed with this oil, showing that God was blessing the people. And the scent of this costly oil that was abundantly poured down on Aaron's beard to the point that it even got on his clothing was to remind the people that God was blessing them and, and making provision where they sinners could commune with Him. This oil was a gift from God. I wish we had time to explore this because it would make the story, the giving of this oil, the recipe that God gave Moses in Exodus even more poignant. But just to, to briefly tantalize you, perhaps, so that you'll do some further study, it comes just two chapters before Exodus 32, 
this recipe for the oil in Exodus 30. In Exodus 32, if you remember, is the story of the golden calf. And do you remember who made the golden calf? Specifically, it was Aaron. This high priest who had this abundant, fragrant oil poured down on his beard and the collar of his robes. Do you think God was caught off guard by Aaron's treachery? And yet he set Aaron apart for himself anyway, which demonstrates that God knows full well all of our propensities towards sin and still calls us to himself. That's remarkable. This oil was a gift from God to show that he was with his people. And also in verse 3, we see this second metaphor, the dew on Hermon, which, as we talked about last week, was a mountain in the northern portion of Israel. It stands against the common idea you have of what Israel is like as a very arid, dry place. Hermon is a very tall mountain where rains fall nearly continuously, and in the morning, the Moisture that has fallen on the ground condenses once again in the air and falls as dew, like a cycle of life. But David says that this beautiful, lush part of Israel, the effects that you see there of this rain and growing vegetation on the mountains of Hermon, if it could somehow fall in Jerusalem, truly an arid place, often dry most of the year, that the pilgrims traveling up to Jerusalem for this corporate gathering of covenant renewal could, could see that God did that and see it as a gift for God who made Hermon fruitful could make a place like arid Jerusalem fruitful. It would be a gift from Him to do that. So this imperfect high priest Aaron, who committed treacherous treason against God, this arid portion of Israel which did not receive abundant rain, David is saying that God does surprising things. And when we experience unity, it comes down from heaven, like the rains, like, like dew, like the provision of this, of this gift of the oil, it comes from God. Unity is a gift forgiving treacherous, treasonous sinners, making abundant, seemingly lifeless places. God does that. And when He does it, our wishes are, are fulfilled. The ache of our hearts for transformation, for the effects of the curse to be undone, God does that, and it's surprising, and it's joyful. I put in front of you a picture last week. We'll do it again. I mentioned to you, and just briefly, I'll recap what this is. On the left, you'll see a two-story structure. On the right, a one-story structure. This church building is in Peloton, Kentucky, and as I joked with you last week, none of you have ever heard of Peloton, Kentucky. My great um, great-grandmother, I think, her last name was Pelly, so this town was named after my uh, ancestors. Uh, this, this building, the one on the left, was initially built by one of my great-great, I don't remember how many greats, grandmothers for her son, who was a circuit rider preacher, and by building it, it meant that he would come there once a month and preach the gospel. Over time, they disassembled the top floor and used it for another building, 
and the building on the right was uh, retained. It still stands to this day. Nobody worships there anymore. It's just kind of a relic. Uh, the reason I put this up here is because, as I mentioned to you last week, there's a door on the left and a door to the right. And those of you here last week, I told you that the women would enter one of those doors, I don't know which one, and the men would enter the other. And I think the tradition was that they would sit in separate parts of, of the building. We're not going to do that here. That's not why I put this up here. The reason that I put this up here was to show you a church that even architecturally seems somewhat divided. There's two different classes of people in a sense. And my fear is that if we don't explore this gift of unity and treasure it as a gift and and do our dead level best by the grace of the Spirit to maintain it, because again, it comes from heaven, but we are to maintain it, that we could end up like this church. It's a cautionary tale. What's perhaps most cautionary about it is that no one worships there anymore. It just stands there in relative disrepair. We have merged together recently as two churches. We're officially about five and a half, six months into this now. But we have to be careful. Unity is something that must be explored. Unity is something that must be examined. And unity is something that we must all fight for. And fight the tendency to fight against each other. Let me say that again. We must fight for unity by fighting the tendency to fight each other. I said to you last week that there is unique beauty and goodness in the unity of God's covenant blessing stirring our souls with hope. These pilgrims who were coming up to Jerusalem would have had their souls stirred with hope that the God that they had offended thousands of times was welcoming them back home. And likewise, the pilgrims that were along the road, and there would have been thousands and thousands of people coming up to this feast, you would have seen a brother or a cousin or a friend who perhaps last time you got together, you fought. But now you were coming back to worship God and unity and And that's hard when you are not unified with your brother or sister. And so David wrote this psalm as a man who had tasted the bitterness of division for pilgrims who also had experienced this bitterness so they could be renewed together. And what David paints for us here in Psalm 133 is a vision for the beauty of the effects of the gospel. Let me say that again. Psalm 133 is a vision for the beauty of the effects of the gospel. That when God gave us Christ to reconcile us to Himself, He also gave us power and hope that we could be reconciled together. And there is uncommon longed-for beauty in that. And what we are pursuing as two churches that have become one is uncommon. We are striving for the beautiful. We are striving to proclaim to one another, 
to our children who are watching, and to a community which has and is tasting the bitterness of relational brokenness, what the gospel can do. Jesus came to reverse the effects of the fall. Moses was given the law by God to call the people to self-awareness and to obedience. The law can be broken up into two divisions. Obedience to God and love for one another, or more simply, love for God and love for each other. The Ten Commandments themselves bear out that division. The first four are about how we relate to God. Five through ten, so six of the ten are about how we relate to each other. That's interesting, isn't it? There are more of the Ten Commandments given to us to instruct us in how we are to live together than actually in how we relate to God. The law is broken up into these two components, love of God, love of people. Leviticus chapter 19, notice how the law instructed the people of Israel into how they were to live with each other. In verse 16, Moses says, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. In other words, the way you love each other reflects what you think about me. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And then Moses ups the ante. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Moses wrote these things down under inspiration of the Spirit to call people to awareness of their propensities, to their patterns of living, but also to call them to do the opposite. Rather than bearing a grudge, to forgive. Rather than merely loving self, to love others. But the law could never transform. The law could only call us to change. It could not provide the power for change. And that's why Jesus came. In John 17, Jesus says to his Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus took unity very seriously. Jesus knew that unity could only be accomplished through his sacrifice, reconciling God and man, and man and man. And according to Jesus in his prayer to his Father, the very essence of unity, which again is a gift, is proclamational. It proclaims to the world the good news that God has broken into our brokenness and is restoring us and making us whole. What Jesus calls his followers to, what he prays that the Father will gift them with is unity. And what we're calling 
for here, what we're aiming for here is to be more than just a gathering of people, to be more than just a crowd. My son Sam and I went to the first Buckeye game yesterday. It was his birthday gift. We had a lot of fun together. We were together with like-minded people. People that I have never met before high-fived me throughout the game. Sam was a little uncomfortable with it at first, but got into the rhythm. We were together with 103,000 fellow attenders and aficionados of the Buckeyes. I will likely never see those same people again. There are a lot of things that we do not have in common. Based upon the amount of alcohol that was imbibed, there are differences in lifestyle. But we had one thing in common yesterday, and that was that we both wanted the Buckeyes to win. Yesterday, I was part of a crowd. I was not part of a community. And we must be careful that we are the same. And like that photo of the old church I showed you just a bit ago, it's, it's possible that we as a merged congregation might just be a crowd, a gathering of people with different ideas, different goals. But Jesus did not come to die to bring together somewhat like-minded people. Jesus died for us to reconcile us to God and to each other that we might be a covenant community, committed to each other despite how hard it is. The second thing I'd like us to see, and really this is an implication of Psalm 133, is that covenant unity is fragile and elusive. It, it fleets away. It's fragile, it's elusive. And covenant unity calls us to be gospel-fluent and postured graciously toward one another. So it's a gift that comes down from heaven like the oil and like the dew, but we are put in charge of maintaining it. And this is why we're talking about it. For the most part, what I see in our newly merged congregation excites me and encourages me. But I know full well because I'm a sinner I'm a justified sinner. I'm new in Christ, but I still do sinful things. I know the propensities of my heart. And yours too. And if we are not aware, vigilant even, about the fragility and elusiveness of unity, it will slip through our hands like, like water. And so we are exploring it. Let's do so further by looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church for a number of reasons, but perhaps the most important reason is that they were very different kinds of people worshiping under one metaphorical roof. And in particular, you had Jews and Gentiles, very different in their background. 
Jewish people who perhaps are very scrupulous in their keeping of the Mosaic law. Gentile pagans who had no conception of it whatsoever. How were two such groups to live together? Well, Paul reminds them that they had a common problem. Look in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This was not a match made in heaven. We could not have been more different than God. We were children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience. How did that get turned around? Because God graciously intervened. If we don't grasp what Paul is saying here, there's no way that you can understand Ephesians. There's no way you can understand the Scriptures. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying that God took those that were most unlike him and made them his sons and daughters. That's fascinating. And then he goes on in verse 11 to make his point. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, verse 14, himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul makes a profound gospel point. If we who were dissimilar from God, not at all deserving of his grace, have been brought together through his son to be part of his family, even to the point that we are now seated in the heavenly places, which blows my mind and I don't fully understand it, How much more should we common sinners unite together, even those of us who have profound differences? That's his point. Which reminds us a whole lot of marriage, doesn't it? We've talked about this metaphor a lot through these years and recent months, especially in our merger. I married my opposite in every way. I joke that when people see us together, they're like, wow, somehow you convinced her to marry you? We are opposites in every way. I married my better half, truly. But we're opposites in more subtle ways. Um, I am OCD. 
When I come home from a trip, even if it's really late at night, my suitcase is unpacked and put away before I go to sleep. I can't sleep if my suitcase is not unpacked. My wife is a little bit less that way. Her suitcase will stay out for several days until she runs out of clothes, and then she has to do something about it. I hate making the bed, largely because we have about 9,000 pillows. I am not good at arranging them. I am terrible at actually making the bed with fresh sheets. Apparently, I learned just a few short years ago that the top sheet is actually supposed to be put on upside down so that when you pull it forward, you can see the pattern on it. I don't understand this. It blows my mind. My wife is wonderful at this. My wife is a planner. She gets this look in her eye. She gets great glee when she gets a new calendar. She loves to look at me and say, let's sit down and have a planning discussion. I hate those discussions. I could go on and on, but I want to eat with her later and sleep in the same bed tonight. (laughs) In all seriousness, I have learned through my marriage in the years that have gone, which are 20 now, just how different we are, far more than we realized than we first married. And by God's grace, we have learned to lay down our rights for each other. And even 20 years in, that's often really hard. And ultimately, my friends, this is what this merger is all about. It's about us being willing to lay down our rights for each other. One of the most profound ways that I have seen this recently in our church is by Andy and Kim Scott bringing their little foster son into their family. It has cost them greatly in ways that most of you are not aware One of the most beautiful aspects of this is to watch their biological children, Maddie and Thomas, surround this little boy with love. It's his birthday. I don't know if it's actually today. It's this weekend sometime. Andy brought some cupcakes. So if you'd like to go out afterward on the little snack table, there are some cupcakes that the Scots brought. And you can go stand around them with Darius, who's a beautiful little boy, and uh, celebrate his birthday with him. But I've loved watching our children, Maddie and Thomas, who've grown up in our church, Surround this little boy with love as though he is blood. And that's what we have to do with each other. We differ to some degree in our style of music and our style of preaching and the way that we view certain secondary, third-level doctrinal issues. But we agreed in this merger that we would lay down some of our rights for each other. Are we still willing to do that? It's costly. Paul goes on to make great applicational points in Ephesians 4. So this is coming out of Ephesians 2 where God made his enemies his children and calls dissimilar people to live together in unity. And he says specifically in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul understood his position very well a sinner saved by grace. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Notice this last phrase, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Not begrudgingly, not because you have to, but because it draws attention to the reconciling grace of Jesus. 
And I want to say this to you very carefully. If you do not currently possess the eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is a gospel disconnect in your head and heart. And I know that's hard to hear. But Jesus came to heal that too. Unity is a gift, but unity is something that we must all fight for. And so I ask you, are you willing to pursue humility or conversely, your own agenda? Are you willing to be marked by gentleness or conversely, fighting for your rights? Will you be marked by patience or rather clamoring for your own way? Will you bear with each other or will you keep score? Will you be willing to be eager to do your dead level best by the grace of the Spirit to maintain unity even at great personal cost or conversely, will you disrupt unity to get your own way? And my friends, this is not just for today or this week. It will be for years to come. For even every marriage begins with a honeymoon, doesn't it? And then the real life together begins. Let me tell you two groups of people or two kinds of people that can really blow apart unity. The first is what I call the discernment police. I was like this when I was in seminary. Your first or second year of seminary, you realize just how everybody around you is so incredibly ignorant. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. And just how enlightened you are. I was an intern at a church while I was in seminary. And I remember parsing every single thing that the pastor said. And we'd have family meetings, and I would raise my hand and correct these little minutia-level things because I wanted to be perceived as the smart one, and I wanted to protect the, the quality of the church. And you know what I really was? I wasn't helping the church. I was just a little punk. I was part of this band of people that I call the discernment police where everything is a big deal. Perhaps you've heard the old adage, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. It's an inability to distinguish between primary and secondary matters. Primary matters like like justification by faith alone and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. That's primary. The Trinity, primary. The authority of the Scriptures, primary. The morality of the leadership and the body, primary. Your view on how everything will shake out based upon what Revelation says, not quite as primary. And I probably just made a couple of you mad. You can talk to me afterward. That's not the same level. To make it a little more light, what color of carpet we will choose, what furniture we will buy, and so forth and so on. Discernment police are unable to distinguish between primary and secondary matters, and they go after everything thinking that they are the gatekeepers of the health of the church. 
I will say to you that our elders are committed to listening to and responding humbly to the trajectory of our church. If you have concerns about our theological trajectory, our philosophical convictions, or or the morality of our church, please talk to us and we will listen. But don't hammer every nail that you perceive. That's a killer of unity. Another kind of person that concerns me, that destroys unity, is a gossip. Let me tell you what a leading sociologist says about those who gossip together. Gossip builds false friendships. It's a hot wiring of the connection with a friend, and really the only connection is that you have a common enemy. Gossip never stays contained, and gossips gossip about gossips. You know what the opposite of gossip is? Promotion. If you hear somebody gossip about another, do you know what you should do? Find something nice to say something about the one who has been gossiped about. That throws off a gossip. They do not know what to do then. I have to hurry through this. Um, My wife has taught me the most about this. When I was a young man, my Sunday dinner table was a hotbed of gossip. It was awful. We skewered people every Sunday after the service. We didn't even realize it until one day my wife said, I can't believe you all actually do this. And I was shocked. And the longer I've gotten to know her, I know where that came from because my mother-in-law is that way. My mother-in-law is now attending our church. I have never heard my mother-in-law say one bad thing about anybody ever. And I've known her for 24 years. And I'm not joking. I cannot remember a time. I learned a whole lot from my seminary professors, but I also learned a whole lot from from just normal church members who live in hope of the gospel. You know, the opposite of of gossip, it's promotion, it's affirmation, it's, it's finding the best in people. And we all have to practice it. I won't take time to turn here because I know we're running out of time, but I I encourage you to look through Colossians 3 where, where Paul says that we are to look to Christ who is in the heavenly places, that this new life that is ours in him is the way that we should all go. It's, it's, the, it's the path we should take. And then he gives real-life examples. And specifically, he talks about disunity in the church and, and unity in the church. He calls the people in Colossae to self-awareness, to recognizing former tendencies and calling them to new tendencies. I wish we had more time to explore this, but let me just say that, that we've already experienced change here. And some of it I know for, for you has been hard. Change is hard. Change scares people. But let me say to you that the main things that have made Berlin Berlin, and the main things that made North Point North Point, now in our newly combined Berlin church, those main things are still the main things. And, and by God's grace, that will never change. We're going to experience more change in days to come. One of the gifts that God gave North Point through the years was was a fund that we could use to eventually buy property and build a building. Well, we don't have to do that anymore. So when we came together, we paid off the mortgage here. 
We want to use some of that money to pave that back parking lot, which is just gravel and weeds right now. We need to do some updates from an internal point of view to make this a welcoming place for the community. Do you know, researchers who study such things say that people make a decision whether or not they will return to a church 10 minutes after they come through the front doors? That's fascinating. That means before the service ever begins, they know if they're coming back or not. We have work to do in that so that we welcome visitors and, and we take care of our church family here. Changes will, will continue to come. We, we want to do it as carefully as we can with, with great communication, and we, we are committed to that, to letting you know. But don't be afraid of change, peripheral change. The main things will remain the main things here. So, let's close. There, there is unique beauty and, and goodness in the unity of God's covenant blessing, stirring our souls with hope and And covenant unity is fragile and elusive, calling us to be gospel fluent, deeply aware of the gospel, and postured graciously toward one another. I'm very optimistic. I'm very optimistic about the future of this church. But there are times when we have to come together as a family and say, where could we go if we're not careful? And how may we, by the grace of Jesus Christ, because of what he has called us to, pursue unity, this gift that comes from heaven. The picture will be placed on the screen once again. I don't want to be like this old relic, a monument to the past with division. Let us be a people that are willing to lay down their rights for each other, just like Jesus laid down his rights for us so that we might love one another and and reach this world. Rehearse the gospel and pray for unity. Pray for self-awareness. Pray, pray for your challenging relationships. Rehearse the gospel and repent when necessary, when you have gossiped or slandered. Rehearse the gospel and forgive when someone has offended you. Rehearse the gospel and, and promote and affirm. Because when we live together in this kind of unity, we draw attention to what Jesus has done for us. And in doing so, he gets glory and we receive uncommon joy. We need it. And this broken and dying world all around us, they need it too. So by the grace of the Spirit and for the glory of Jesus, let us be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now take your word comforting and challenging, and do all those things necessary in our minds and hearts to change us. And for your glory, Lord Jesus, and for the good of this body and for the good of this community, bind us together, people willing to lay down their rights for the good of one another and for the glory of Jesus. Do this, we pray, we can't do it alone. Accomplish all these things in us, for it is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.